Hi, I'm Margie and welcome to the Desert Island Dishes podcast. This is the podcast where every week I ask my guests to choose their seven Desert Island dishes. These range from finding out about the dish that most reminds them of their childhood, the best dish they've ever eaten, and of course, the last dish they would choose to eat before being cast off the Desert Island. If you're listening and have been enjoying Desert Island Dishes, please do take just 30 seconds to leave a five-star rating and a little review, as it really does make the world of difference and helps other people to find the podcast, which is always exciting. So I hope you're all well and have had a lovely week. This week, I met with the Queen of Bake Off herself. And if you watched last week's episode of Bake Off, you'll have heard Prue say she never wanted to taste chocolate again. So I took the somewhat bold step of baking her some brownies. (laughs) I was expecting her just to put them in her bag, but she ate them in front of me and I got really quite panicky and nervous, but I'm pleased to report that she's very polite and said they were really good. There may even have been two reallys, but hey, who's counting? So enough of my brownie bragging. Here is the woman herself. My guest today is Prue Lees. Prue is the founder of Leeds, a writer of both novels and cookbooks, a businesswoman, a TV presenter, and of course, judge on the Great British Bake Off. A champion of food and a passionate charity supporter, there were many great quotes from Prue on the record, whole articles, in fact, dedicated to Prue quotes. But one that stuck out for me was on food trends in the Telegraph, where she was quoted as having said, I don't give a toss for drizzles and fizzles. That's not food. I like real food. <laughs> Welcome, Prue. <laughs> hello, hello. So hello. this is very exciting because has it been over 25 years since you've written a cookbook? It is. It is. It is over 25 years. I mean, I wrote 12 cookbooks and I really enjoyed doing it. But cookbooks are really hard work writing them. And although they sold very well, I just, after 12 of them, I thought I had no more to say. And food trends weren't moving very fast then. And I, I just sort of thought I, I felt stale. And anyway, I wanted to write novels. And so I just decided that I'll never write a novel if I go on writing cookery. Of course, the publishers wanted me to go on with cookery because they were very successful. And you know, the last thing they needed was a new novelist. But I was determined. And so I just sold my business, um, which was very big at the time. I had about 500 people working for me. But I thought, if you want to be a novelist, you better be serious. So I sold everything and I stopped writing cookery and I wrote novels. That's so exciting. And had you had any experience of writing novels? No, but I'd always written, um, I wrote a play when I was at university, didn't get anywhere, but, and I wrote poetry and little stories and things. And um, anyhow, you've got to write your first novel, haven't you? So, and, and actually cookery writing is quite a good training for, for, for any writing because you have to be accurate. You can't um, mess around with people's money and you can't get the recipes wrong. It makes everybody very cross. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, so accuracy and editing things down to make sure that they're not overwritten, all of that you learn, whatever kind of writing you're doing. So anyway, I did that for a long time and um, wrote novels. And then I began to get pulled back into television. You know, I started doing The Great British Menu and then finally Great British Bake Off. And then, of course, I, I mean, I hadn't realized to what extent food had changed. It was almost as if I'd been away. Really? Because although I'd been eating in smart restaurants and, and I still knew a lot of chefs and I was involved with my own cookery school and things, I hadn't realized how deeply food had changed and the, 
the way people eat had changed so much. You know, there's much more informality and sharing and and sort of quick dishes that are easy to do and and can be done fast after work. And so I I just thought it was very exciting. And and then also I was struck by all these bakers were so imaginative and into all these ingredients like um, yuzu and sumac and that's so brilliant. So you actually got inspired to write the book through your Partly because of, yeah, because those bakers, I mean, they're all amateurs. And yet they knew in many cases a lot of, more about certain things than I did. And I, it was just so exciting. I kept borrowing their recipes and trying things at home. And, and I thought, oh, I'm going to have to write a cookbook. And of course, to be you know honest about it, it was also exciting because there was this whole new market for me, this whole new bunch of young people who'd never known me and if you you know their mothers might have known me or their grandmothers might have known me from the old days in cooking in my restaurants and catering and so on but they certainly wouldn't have known me and now suddenly there are millions of them who know us yeah I mean, it's strange to think of anyone not knowing who you are but yeah I guess that's true it sort of opened you up to a whole new, new load of people and people who want to, to to cook more informally, who are going to university, they want quick dishes that don't cost a fortune. Yeah. It's just, you know, whereas all the cookery books that I had written before, I suppose I'd had teaching in mind because what I was doing was I was running a big cookery school. I had a lot of young cooks who were cooking in my catering company or in my restaurants. And so it had to be very exact. And it had to be, if it was a it had to be exactly as I said it had to be because, you know, customers were coming repeatedly to have that same dish and you can't just be inventive. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> so it was really restricting. And now it's completely different. So it's, it's good fun. Yeah. Prue, tell me, out of interest, how does the thought of being sent to the desert island make you feel? Are you talking about the television program or, or the talking about, uh, you know? No, so if you were on, your own, on a desert island, would you be okay? Um, would I be okay on a desert island? No. I'm far too gregarious. I'm very affectionate and tactile, and I uh, I need animals around me. I need children and human beings, and no, I'd be absolutely miserable on a desert island. Okay, so you'd be you'd I, be crafting a raft. Oh, oh yeah, I would. I'd be waving wildly from the top of the palm tree with a bit of flapping sail. But I would be quite efficient at building the um, raft. Yeah, I can imagine that. So I know that you were brought up in South Africa, so I'm excited to hear what you've chosen as your first desert island dish. And that is the dish that most reminds you of your childhood. Well, I think it would have to be babuti, which is a South African Cape Malay dish. It's actually a bit like a shepherd's pie, but it's quite spicy and it has curry in it mm. and a bit of apples and sal- sultanas. And then it has a top rather like on the top of a moussaka. It's um, like a little custard it's made with egg yolks and yogurt. And you spread it across the top. And then you're supposed to put um, kaffir leaves into it, but they're so difficult to get. Most people just put bay leaves. Okay. It's more for the look of the thing than anything. It's a brilliant dish. It freezes well. It's great for a party because everybody loves it. You serve it with rice, just rice and salad. You can prepare it in advance. It feeds about the 5,000 and it freezes. So it's pretty good. Yeah, that sounds ideal. And it's in my book. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) Even better. (laughs) So was that something that you would have quite often as a child? Yes. I mean, it's the sort of almost the South African national dish. Okay. Everybody knows it. And I read an interview where you lovingly describe your mother, Peggy, as the worst cook in the world. But you do write a lovely dedication to her in your very first book, Leith's All-Party Cookbook, because 
she might not have been the best cook, but you say that she was an amazing hostess. Yeah, she gave, I think the delegation said, for my mother who can't cook for toffee, but she gives marvelous parties anyway. And I think the point I was trying to make is that that when you're entertaining, it's not just about the food. It's far more about people feeling relaxed and happy. And if you're going to be in the kitchen all the time, hot and sweaty and worried stiff and flapping about getting things absolutely perfect, nobody is going to have a good time. Everybody's going to catch the tension and the anxiety. You want to just be relaxed. So I'd far rather have not very wonderful food or very easy, simple food. That's actually quite a good lesson to learn from quite early on. And I think she just, um, she'd never learned to cook. And you dreaded going to my mother's for lunch or anything because her idea of, she was also very Scottish, so that she would be like me. She hated to um, waste anything. So leftovers always got used. But my mother lived alone. And so the leftovers would pile up for a week. And then we'd get what she called, oh, darling, she'd say, you're coming to lunch. I'm afraid all I've got is, uh, I'll have to make a little schludgel. Oh, a and, and I'd I think, oh, we'd, my brother and I'd look at each other because the slugel meant every single de- leftover from the fridge into a frying pan, stirred over, you know, mixed up together. Disgusting. <laughs> so, so no, what, she had no no taste buds. And um, what did she think about your career? Because if she, well, wanted- she was just astonished, yeah. <laughs> absolutely amazed. She was an actress. And I first started off thinking I would be an actress and I went to drama school, but I was no good at it. So I did a whole lot of different things. And then I finally ended up cooking, which is wonderful. Yeah, I've heard that your true passion for food and cooking really began when you went to Paris to learn French. So let's talk about the second Desert Island dish. And that's the first dish that you learned to cook. I think the very first dish that I learned to cook, proper dish. I mean, I, I had, when I was at school, I made a Christmas cake, which was a disaster. <laughs> and, you know, there were other, I used to make jam tarts when I was a child. But when I was in France, I learned to make this tart normande, the classic tart normande, which is a, a very rich pastry flan. And it's filled with frangipani, which is that wonderful um, sort of soft mixture of almonds and cream and butter and sugar. It's really All delicious. The good stuff. <laughs> And then you put, you sink apples into the top of it, or you can do plums or damsons or anything else. The classic Normandy one is with apples. And then you put a thin layer of very thin apricot jam, like a glaze on the top. It used to be difficult to make when I learned because you had to do it all by hand. Oh, yeah, of course. But now you've got wonderful machines that you can make it in 10 minutes because you you put all the pastry ingredients in together, whiz them up, and then press them into a flan ring and then blitz all the filling ingredients in the same bowl. You don't even need to wash it. And then you put the apples on top into the oven. Who taught you? Um, Who taught me to do it? The woman, the first time I did it, I did it with the woman who, for whom I was the au pair. Okay. With her two children. Lovely. Yeah. The best way to learn. Let's talk a little bit about how you got to where you are today, because you have got some really great stories. (laughs) You arrived in England at the age of 21 and started working as a private cook, cooking dishes in your bedsit and then transporting them on the tube. Tell us a bit about that time. What kinds of people were you cooking for? Most I was cooking for rather rich couples, probably business people who lived in Mayfair or Knightsbridge or Chelsea, the sort of posh parts of London. And I lived near Earl's Court in a, in a bed sitter. And I used to set off with my 
two baskets, you know, one with ingredients or something and one with knives and, and tools. And it was a very good way to start because you would be cooking small quantities, but you had to get it right. And they were quite picky, these women that you cooked for. And it would be three courses and you'd have to time it right because you usually did the washing up and the waiting. Okay. And then the washing up at the end. So it was a really good lesson. And sometimes I used to get quite um, fed up because I'd hear, I remember once, um, this may be the story you heard, but I remember once hearing a hostess telling all her guests that she had cooked the, the dinner because they somebody said, this is absolutely delicious. Can we have the name of your cook? And she said, oh, no, no, she just comes in to do the washing up. She said, I do all the cooking. She said, we've got to cook and so on. And I wanted to push the, it was, I was hearing all this through the sort of doors of the hatch that went through to the dining room, the old-fashioned house with a hatch to the dining room. And I wanted to fling them open and say, she's lying. I did the cooking. And then I thought, this really won't get me any extra customers. No. And, and everybody will get embarrassed. So I thought, well, what I'll do is I took some of my business cards. I'd had little cards printed and I put them into all the pockets of the guests in their coats, which was hanging outside in the hall. That is very clever. And I thought, well, there's a marketing woman in me somewhere. And I do attribute, you know, one of the things that worries me is that at catering colleges and at art schools and at technical colleges, they very often teach you the skills, but they don't teach you how to sell those skills. That's so true. Nothing about marketing nothing about business, nothing about how to cash flow or any of the things that help you make a living. Yeah, it's so important, isn't it? It's changing now. Most, most colleges have woken up to the fact that. Yeah, but um, didn't you cook for Princess Margaret? And you oh, had to cook lobsters, even though you'd never cooked lobsters before. I know, but that's a, horrible, that's a really shaming story. You know, if we go on like this, nobody will buy my cookbook. <laughs> oh, that woman doesn't know a thing. No. But it's true that what happened was I, I had just come out of cookery school and I had never ever seen a British lobster. I came from South Africa. We don't have lobsters in South Africa. We have a sort of crayfish, but they're smaller and they're different. And what I didn't know was that when lobsters are dead, they are red. And I'd only ever seen pictures of lobsters. They're always red yeah. in cookbooks and things. <laughs> and I didn't know that they were black when they're alive. Anyway, I had to cook these lobsters. And they, the woman who rang me up and said, would you like to do this lunch for Princess Margaret? I said, yes. I'd love to. And what does she want? And they said caviar for a first course and lobster for a main course. And I thought, oh, God, I've never, ever seen lobster or a lob. I've never cooked lobster and I've never seen caviar. But, of course, I said, yes, I'd love to. I thought, well, I'll mug it up. Caviar was easy. You basically open the tin. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the lobster was quite difficult and it, they were very expensive and I couldn't afford to buy one. So I got this book, which had the instructions, and it told you how to hold the knife and how to hold the lobster, gripping it firmly between your finger and thumb, and identify the cross where the carapace meets the head, and then take a big kitchen knife and <laughs> how to stab this lobster, basically, oh and then split it. And I, I practiced on the teddy bear, pushing the knife in and <laughs> twisting it down, and then I went off. And when I got into the kitchen, there were these knobs, lobsters, quite a lot of them, and they were all tied up with rubber bands around their claws. Yeah. And I thought, oh, good, I'm glad they're all tied up because, you know, I've got to kill them. And I mean, you know, I wouldn't like those claws to be just waving around. Anyway, so I was busy stabbing these things, feeling rather grateful that they were so still. 
Must yeah. be, they're pretty comatose. The <laughs> butler comes in. He says, what are you doing? And I said, I'm killing the lobsters. <laughs> and he said, they're boiled. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. I mean, if you don't know, how are you meant to know? <laughs> I was a bit surprised that they were so obedient. Yeah. Well, and the, but the business went so well because within two years, you had four people working for you. And I know that you're really, you're really passionate about business. Do you think that comes quite naturally to you? Well, my, I hadn't thought of this until many years later, but my father was a very successful businessman. Okay. And my mother, in a sense, was a businesswoman because she ran a, a theater company. And that takes a lot of organizing. You yeah. have to move, you know, it's not just sets and theater and costumes and people and rehearsal rooms and timing and you're dealing with actors and so forth. And you've got to make money at the end of it because there were no grants or anything. So she must have been, although I never talked business to her, she must have been a pretty yeah. good businesswoman. So it's, it's in your blood. Yeah, I think so. Okay. You, might, you might not like this next bit. <laughs> All right. You moved from a bedsit to a little cottage in Paddington and you got a cat, mm. which is obviously very lovely. But can you tell us about how one of your customers found out that oh, you yeah, had no, a cat? No, 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 no. <laughs> right. I'll tell the story, but it's pretty horrible. When I began, I used to, before, while I was... I'm doing odd, odd dinner parties and stuff. I also started making pâtés and meringues and things for pubs. And I would deliver these puddings all over the place for pubs and also for private people. And um, it was the first time I'd had a little house. And so I thought, oh, I'll have a cat. And so I, I got this Benedict cat, he was called. And he was extremely adventurous. And he used to go climbing on everybody's roofs. And he was constantly getting stuck on a roof or something. It was really boring. And he once climbed into the back of somebody's caravan outside my muse cottage, and he went to Cornwall. Oh, <laughs> and I had to go and fetch him. It was very irritating. But anyway, one day I was, he used to watch me cooking. He used to sit on this windowsill. I mean, this was before the days of health and safety. Yeah. And um, I would be cooking and he would sit on the windowsill and he'd watch and he was good as gold he never stole the food or put his hand near his paw out and he never walked on the if he wanted to get down he would jump right over onto the floor um he was quite good company i liked him there anyway it doesn't sound right today does it but anyway one day i got a uh, phone call and this male voice said do you have a cat called benedict oh god he's stuck on the roof somewhere so I said, I'm terribly sorry. Is he stuck on your roof? And this guy said, no, but his collar tag is stuck in my trifle. Oh, my goodness, Prue. <laughs> I know. God, I always have, there are like horror stories about blue plasters, but I think <laughs> yes. a, a cat's, um, cat's collar, tag collar would be, <laughs> take the biscuits and then. The third desert island dish. What is the best dish you've ever eaten? I think that's a really difficult thing to think of. And I don't think I don't think I would think it was the best dish today because there's so many wonderful things. Yeah. Well the thing that really made me think that cooking was a fantastic art and a skill. I was traveling around with my husband. I'd rather bullied him into going to France to eat in, in three star restaurants and he didn't want to do it. He didn't like abroad and he certainly didn't like fancy French food. But he sort of realized it was important for my career. I'd been working about 15 years in the business by then, and it was at the height of the Nouvelle Cuisine explosion when people were, chefs were really making exquisite little plates of deliciousness. 
And we went to this hotel called Pique in Valence in, in France. And the, the woman who runs it now is the granddaughter, but this was the grandfather who did it. She still has the, the Michelin stars too. It's uh, three generations of Michelin stars, a fantastic restaurant called um, Pique. Used to be called Jacques Pique, which was her grandfather. The, the dish we had was a soup. It was a pea and mint soup, but floating in it were charred scallops and charred chicken livers. Mm. And it sounds so odd, scallop and chicken livers and pea and mint. You'd think that wouldn't work. Yeah. But it was absolutely delicious. Oh. It was just wonderful. Oh, it's so nice when things like that take you by mm. surprise. Yeah. It, was, it was wonderful. So, I, I mean, that was one of the things that sort of inspired me to be a bit braver and try and experiment rather than always just doing the classic. Yeah. But that's part of what eating out in restaurants should do, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. It should inspire yeah. you to sort of try different yeah. things. Yeah. So at the same time as your cooking business was taking off, you also began writing cookery columns, including for the newly launched female section of the Daily Mail. There's quite a good story about how that came about. Can you tell us? Yeah, well, there was at the time, I wasn't well known at all, but I had just opened my restaurant and that was very popular and it was very full and fashionable. It was in Notting Hill. And um, the editor of the Daily Mail was launching the, the female section, which still goes but it was for the first it was the first part of the daily mail which had been a broad broadsheet which was now going to be a sort of you know decent small sized page and he wanted a cook, cookery writer and so he asked lady elizabeth anson who's the queen's cousin okay and she was very grand and she ran a company well known called party planners that pl- planned all the, still does, now plans, you know, parties in Dubai and on the Queen Mary and grand, grand parties. But in those days, she and I both had very embryonic businesses. And she knew me because I used to do most of the food for her parties. Okay. Anyway, she said, well, there's only one, she said to the editor, I'd love to do that. There's only one problem with it. Well, the fact there are two problems with it. One is that I can't write. And the other is that I can't cook. Oh. <laughs> but she said, I know a woman who can. And she introduced me. So I went off to see the editor. And he said, but, you know, who are you? you know, I want Lady Elizabeth Anson. He said, will you ghost a column for her? Will you write the column and we'll put her name on it? And I thought about that. And I thought, no, I really want a column. So I said, look, how about a deal? I'll write her column one week and I'll write my column the next. And I'll give her all the posh food. And then I will do the homely, you know, baked potatoes, the shepherd's pie and the you know, marmalade and things like that. And she'll get all the dinner party stuff. So that's what we did. That's and it worked, it worked quite well, except that once, once I gave her a very smart creme brulee with, with spiced peaches at the bottom of it. Yeah. I put the, you put spiced peaches in and you make like a creme brulee. So on. And I put the, the recipe, which had to have some stem ginger in with the peaches. Yeah. And I put, instead of putting one ounce of, of um, stem ginger, I just put one ounce of ginger. Oh. And people thought I meant a whole pot of ground ginger. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Which is understandable because I hadn't made it clear. And a whole pot of ground ginger would sort of blow your head off. Yeah, that's quite a lot. <laughs> and so the editor's wife cooked this. <laughs> I thought I'd lose my job, but I didn't. <laughs> But when mm. I hear that story, I mean, I just think that's such an astute and confident thing to do to strike a bargain like that with the editor. 
Were you one of those people at school that everyone just kind of knew was going to do big things? No, no. I, I thought I was going to do big oh, things. Oh, you did. Nobody <laughs> else did. And in fact, I thought I was going to be head girl. But I was in for a rude shock because I wasn't. Who, and who it, tipped you to the post? Well, no, it wasn't. Unfortunately, up until my year, the, the head girl had been voted for by the, for, by the form. Mm-hmm. And I think I was quite popular and we all had a lot of fun. But the, the nuns who ran the, the show changed the rules and they decided who would be the oh. head. And I was really upset about this. And the head teacher thought she better explain to me what had happened. And she said, we couldn't let you. She said, the thing is, you have a real talent for leadership, but you lead to the bad. Oh. And we need somebody who will lead to the good. <laughs> Which I thought was pretty unfair because I wasn't always leading to the band. <laughs> anyway, I didn't get it. Well, but um, you haven't done too badly as no, a consequence. No. The fourth desert island dish, Prue, tell me what your favorite sandwich is. Well, this is rather boring, but I like, I think my favorite sandwich is so simple. It's just a brown bread sandwich with smoked salmon and cream cheese in it. Lots of middle, middle, I like lots of cream cheese, lots of smoked salmon, very thin brown bread with a cut, crust cut off and in, in smart little fingers or something. And when um, my children were at school on their sort of school picnic day or, you know, Father's Day or sports day or something, we always packed up two things. One was the smoked salmon sandwiches and the other was eaten mess packed in little yogurt pots, you know, Ooh. just strawberries and meringue and cream and and it's so classic and so english but it is this it's unbeatable a good smoked salmon sandwich is wonderful it's a classic for a reason isn't it Mm. yeah so it was at the age of just 29 that you opened your restaurant and soon after the cooking school was am i right in thinking that was initially the school intended as a training center for the chefs for your catering business well no i had it had to be more than that because in order to survive and make money or make enough money to survive it had to have a bigger audience than just providing chefs for my restaurant and my catering company although what made me want to start a cookery school was that Caroline Waldgrave who became the principal of the school she was my head um, chef head cook we called her for my catering company and we were forever struggling with the kids who came out of college because what we were most of the people who went to catering college in those days were boys and they were mostly young working class lads who didn't really want to be chefs, but they'd been told at school, you know, you're too thick for the army. You better be a cook, you know. It was really not considered a job for intelligent people and it was very seldom and was never considered a job for smart middle class boys. They all, the stupid boys had to go to the city mm-hmm. and even and all the clever boys had to go to the city. All the boys were, were not expected to be cooks. So I just thought this was crazy because these boys were very well trained in exactly in the methods. You know, they could skin a squid beautifully and dice it and lovely. But they would never taste squid. They'd come out of catering college and they would never have tasted what they'd cooked. It's changed now, but in those days, catering colleges just taught technique. They didn't teach a love of food. They didn't teach history of food. They didn't teach where things come from. They taught nothing except how to do it. Because cooks were supposed to be underlings who just did what they told. They were little machines. 
And um, so although they were good workers, they were not what I wanted. And But the girls who came out of the Cordon Bleu and these smart schools, which were sort of slightly wrongly called finishing schools, but there was a sort of element of, in those days, they were only for girls, they were mostly middle-class girls. And the idea was that it was very good for women to learn to cook because one day they might get married and then they should give their husband a lovely dinner every time he came from the office. And they were young women who did have a love of food. Their parents were, you know, often took them out out to dinner and they probably ate well at home and they went abroad occasionally. So they had the enthusiasm and the attitude I wanted, but they didn't have the skills. And the boys had the skills and they didn't have the attitude. I went, okay, we're going to teach attitude and knowledge and skills and professionalism. And they're not going to be there as, as in a finishing school. We only want to teach people who want to earn their living by cooking. And of course, we ended up doing um, evening classes for everybody and we didn't really mind what your ambitions were, but it's it's a really great school, and it still is. Yeah, that's still so a really great school. So what you started doing was really revolutionary at the time. In a way, it was. In a way, it was. It, it was great. You know, Caroline was a, I mean, Caroline was only twenty three when we opened the school, and she was the principal. Whoa! She'd been. She had, she never went to university because she had glandular fever or something, and in those days. Doctors said things like, "Oh, you better not go to university. It will, it will give you brain fatigue or something, <laughs> make you too tired. You better do something untaxing." And so her mother sent her up to the Cordon Bleu, where she was a good student, but quite a naughty one. And I remember ringing up the Cordon Bleu for a reference for her. I was about seven years older, eight eight years older than Caroline, and I rang them to say, "I'm thinking of hiring this girl I've just interviewed." They said, "Caroline Barrow." She was called Barrows, and they said. Caroline Burroughs, but she was the naughtiest girl in the school. <laughs> she sounds good. We'll have yeah. that. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> and she was brilliant. She, was, she had this ability to both um, be very friendly to new recruits. You'd often find her with her arm around a girl saying, and she'd go crying because, you know, she couldn't do it or she found it all too difficult. It was her first day or something. She said, don't worry, you know, you stay, stick it for three days and you'll love it. And because people are very nervous on their first day in a big job. And, yeah. and but she would always be very but but she'd say, you must cut the carrots like I eat in this way. So nice but firm. Yeah, and she and it's still a great school. I was there last week and it was they were doing the advanced slot were doing the most amazing food, just beautiful. So cool that that's your legacy. Yes. We're on to the fifth desert island dish, and that's the dish that you eat the most often. Well, I think if I'm on my own, I have, which I'm very seldom on my own now, but I think if I'm on the, my own, I, I probably eat yogurt with honey and a few almonds on top. But um, if John and I are at home and I open the fridge and have to make something, it's usually something out of leftovers. And I suppose what we eat most for supper is something like lots of chopped fresh vegetables. We have a really nice vegetable garden, so it's nearly, in the summer it's always fresh veg. And I... Cook, chop it all very finely and toss it with a bit, bit of butter and a mint or nutmeg or whatever it is and put a poached egg on it. I mean, poached egg on top of greens, whether it's spinach or beans or anything, is always delicious. Yeah. So that's what I probably eat most often. Well, that sounds good. And rumour has it that you cook your husband lunch most days too. I do. I cook. <laughs> yes, you do. He's a lucky man. What do you normally cook him for lunch? Mainly we eat 
soup for lunch, and I make it. We all, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an old-fashioned um, stock maker. I never don't have stock. And so one whole big drawer of the freezer is full of, you know, liters full of beef stock, lamb stock, chicken stock, and also, you know, summer berries in compost and things that are useful. And sometimes I freeze gravy, and I make very good gravy. What's the secret to the best gravy, Prue? You know what it is? It's good stock to start with good stock. And it's a lot of wine boiled down to almost no wine. Okay. Because you don't want that purpley, winey taste. You want to boil that all down. But, but if you take half a bottle of wine and boil it down to three tablespoons, the, the winey taste is gone, but the richness is there. Yeah. And it's just Okay. Good. That's a top tip. So we can't not talk about Bake Off. Obviously, you were judge on the Great British Menu for 11 years, so you were no stranger to television. But you yourself have said that Bake Off is a different level of fame and recognition. How have you found it? Do you know, I absolutely love it. Yeah. (laughs) I know I'm not meant to say that, but I I absolutely do. I mean, who wouldn't? You know, somebody stops stops me in the supermarket and says, "You off the you the lady off the telly." I say, "Yeah, yes, I am." It gives me lots of street cred with my grandchildren, who very bad. (laughs) And so, you know, yeah, I do like it, and I like the attention. And I mean, very occasionally, it's a bit of a if somebody's really, you know, if you're sitting with your family around a table at a restaurant. And you're in the middle of a conversation and they want not just a selfie, but they want you to go over there and stand at the light and get, oh, uh, and, and some people are very um, determined to be. Yeah, that's quite demanding. Yes, they yes, try to yes, position yes, you yes. for the perfect selfie. Yes. <laughs> yes. And how did it come about? Did you get a call one day and you just knew you wanted to do it? or No, I, I knew before I ever got a call that I'd, I'd say yes if I was asked because I'd always been uh, quite sort of impressed with Mary at her age, and she's even older than me, doing Bake Off. And then when she said she wasn't going to go with the show and she was going to stay with the BBC, it did cross my mind, well, maybe they'll ask me. And then I thought, oh, no, they weren't. No no new um, channel is going to follow the same formula of, you know, Paul with some older granny. Um, but they did. <laughs> so then when I – it was my agent rang me and – uh, she, and she said, don't get too excited. I know they're seeing a lot of other people. So I didn't think I'd get it until they actually offered it to me. Oh my goodness, that is so cool. And one final question. Mm. You obviously eat a lot of cake, which sounds like my dream job. Mm. On those days, do you also have lunch and supper? No, I don't because I'm a, I'm a sort of, I've been, I'm, I'm always in danger of being overweight. In fact, I'm always about to stone overweight. I don't, most of the No, work, you're not. I am, I am. I'm quite tall, so most people don't realize it, but I, I, I know I could lose at least half a stone. So I'm always, I'm not always on diet because I really hate the whole dieting thing, but I, I am conscious of how many calories there are and everything. So if, I'm, if there are 12 bakers in the cake, in the tent, and they're doing over two days, they're doing three challenges, I have to taste a lot of, of little mouthfuls. Yeah, it's a lot. So the, the trick is to taste a small teaspoonful and however delicious it is, try not to go back for a second dip. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that is the hardest bit, isn't it? Yeah, and that's hard. But the, I don't eat breakfast and I don't, I might have a salad for lunch. Okay. And then, then I'll have supper afterwards. We all have supper together afterwards. These are just the strange questions that go through my head, Prue. We're on to the sixth desert island dish and that's your go-to dinner party dish. 
My favorite dinner party dish, and I really must get another one because I do this so often, is a is a butterfly roast lamb, which is so easy. You get the butcher to take the bones out and open it out. You smear a tin of anchovies, all chopped up, all over it. Put it in the oven. And when the doorbell rings, this is your dinner party. Yes. When the doorbell rings for the dinner party, you, put, you get the oven hot. When the doorbell rings, you put it into a blazing hot oven. You have drinks for half an hour. And then you take it out of the oven, put it on the side to rest while you have your first course. And when you've had your first course, it's perfect. And all you've done, and you, it's made the gravy too. Also, if I, the other thing I sometimes do is put a whole lot of soy sauce all over it. Ooh. And the soy sauce and the anchovies make a kind of salty gravy and you don't need anything else. I like that you've got the timing down exactly yeah. right. Well, it's, it's, if, you, if you think in half hours, if it's a fat um, English leg of lamb, it, um, half an hour will give you a medium rare leg of lamb. So half an hour cooking while you're having drinks, half an hour while you eat your first course. Ideal. It's there. And then do you normally serve a pudding? Um, and the easiest pudding, which uh, there are various vari- variants in my book, which is basically based on, you know, that um, Muller fruit corner, oh, yes. you know, little commercial things. Yeah. They're very nice yo- vanilla yogurt. And then in the corner, there's a compote of something. Yeah. And I used to be addicted to these things. Yes. <laughs> and so I started making my own. And so, you know, I'd put a damson puree at the bottom and then I'd put some yogurt and cream mixed um, on top of it. And then I'd put muscovado sugar on top. And I was, I was called this um, mus- muscovado heaven. Mm-hmm. I thought I'd invented it. And um, then I saw that Nigella had a recipe called Barbados Dream and it's exactly the oh. same. <laughs> so I didn't invent it. Mr. Muller did. But the point is there are various vari- variations. My mother used to do layered up um, custody cream with um, passion fruit and that is absolutely and a bit of sherry and that's delicious and then you know they're various but you can make them in five minutes and they are unbeatable they're like a sort of trifle without the cake yeah I love that um okay so let, let's talk about the book because it really is great and it's getting rave reviews which is so exciting is it a real reflection of the kind of food that you do eat at home yeah it's truly the food not necessarily that I eat at home all the time but it's food that I've cooked over the years yeah. and it's food that I absolutely love. And there's very little in it that's at all complicated. I mean, there is a recipe for how to make puff pastry or, or flaky pastry, but you can use the stuff out of the freezer. It works perfectly well. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's written in a really friendly and unpretentious way. Like I think people will be very reassured mm-hmm. that Prulith enjoys Nando's peri-peri sauce. <laughs> it makes such a good spatchcock <laughs> chicken. It's really excellent. Yeah, it really does. <laughs> um, Much better than you get in Nando's, I tell you. Yes. So, Prue, we have a cookbook corner on Desert Island Dishes. What is your favourite ever cookbook? That's really difficult because it changes all the time. I mean, I think the one that I've used most in the last two years, and and that's for ideas because the recipes are so simple, you just open it and you get ideas, and that's Jamie's Five Ingredients, which is absolutely brilliant. But if I had to take a book with me to the desert island, I'd probably take Constance Spry's, the Constance Spry cookie book. It was published in 1956 or 54 or something, it's totally classic. It's based on French cuisine. 
but it is totally reliable and everything is in there from sort of boiled beef and spiced, you know, really, really old-fashioned things, Sally Lunds mm. and probably how to make haggises in there. <laughs> but it also has nothing and it doesn't work and it tells you how to make everything. Yeah, I think that would be good for a desert island. We're on to the final seventh desert island dish, and that's the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. Well, I'm quite often asked this, and the truth is that my favorite dish, if I was dying... Yeah. <laughs> this is slightly less morbid than that. Yes, morbid than that, but, but um, would be what I had on my wedding day, which was oysters for a first course, oysters for a second course, <laughs> and treacle tart and custard of pudding. <laughs> oh my god, I love that! <laughs> but is um, that what you had at your wedding? Just yeah. Lots and lots of oysters. oysters. Yes, yes, yes. It was the lunch before we got married, and my husband said, "What do you want?" We went to this oyster, to this seafood restaurant, and I just had two plates of oysters, one after another, and then treacle tart, treacle tart, Heaven. really good treacle tart. I think like it. <laughs> Let's leave it there. Thank you, Prue. Those were your Desert Island dishes. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. How wonderful is Prue? I loved all her cooking stories. And cooking is just one of those things where things do go wrong. It's just par for the course. And sometimes you've just got to laugh and remember it's going to make a really good story someday. Come and find me on Instagram at Margie Nomura, where you can probably find me cooking something for a fridge forage or a quick one-pot wonder. I'm working really hard on my website at the moment, and I'm excited to show you, but in the meantime, there are lots of easy, delicious recipe ideas on there, including the recipe that was inspired by Prue. The website is desertislanddishes.co. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next week. Bye.